from the University of Cambridge, this is Election, a weekly politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and I'm going to be coming to you each week from my office here in the Cambridge Politics Department to talk to you about the campaign, the issues, what might happen, what does happen, and we're going to keep going until Britain has a new government, however long that takes. This week, my guest is Martin Jakes, one-time editor of Marxism Today, and now one of the leading Western commentators on China and an advocate for seeing the world through Chinese eyes. He's going to be telling us why it's so important to get a Chinese perspective on world affairs. And actually, the greatest challenge of this century for us with the rise of China is to make sense of China. And the only way you can make sense of China is in Chinese terms. But also why we need to recognise that Britain and Europe just don't matter so much in the world anymore. Not only is Britain much diminished, but Europe is much diminished. The world of the future is going to be shaped above all in the East. So does this election really matter when there's a big power shift going on from west to east? Stay tuned to hear more. Before that, we discuss this week's current news and events. The news for the past few days has been dominated by the story of Jack Straw and Malcolm Rifkind and the sting that exposed these two former foreign secretaries as being willing to take cash in order to do some political work for a fictitious Chinese company. In many ways, it's a very familiar kind of scandal, cash for access. But it also has an unusual dimension in British politics, the foreign affairs dimension, and the fact that this is about China. I'm joined by our regular panel, Helen Thompson, an expert on economics, Finbar Livesey on public policy, and Chris Brooke on political theory. Helen, do you think it matters that China is part of this story? Not in itself, but I think one of the things that's very striking about the way in which Rifkin in particular responded to this scandal was that his first concern was to say, I have not been bought by the Chinese. He didn't want anybody to think that he's the chair of the Intelligence Committee and he was at the behest of a, a foreign government. So the claims that he was making about his pay and his need to earn extra money, etc., were things that to him were just the side story, irrelevant. But his concern was a foreign policy thing, that is to say, do not think for one moment that I've been bought by a foreign government. And what's striking then is, a, is the distance between his view of the scandal and everybody else's view of the scandal, which is that he'd been selling um, his influence for cash. Yeah, they didn't really mind who it was to. I mean, yeah. Finbar, do you think that's the issue here? It's not. The, this is not a scandal about China. This is a scandal about money in British politics. It's accidental that it was China. That was the setup, and that reflects the conversation generally about the rise of China and the world. But quite, that's quite a clever setup. A very, very clever setup. But that's not the core. The core is here is the scandal about who gets access. And then all of the questions that that opens up. Do we have the right people in Parliament? Is the structure of pay correct to incentivize the people who will be good parliamentarians to stand? And do we have channels that they can actually get there? Or is the party system so constrained now that we can't get a broad base of candidates who would be good parliamentarians into the system? So are you basically saying that the, the lesson from this is we don't pay them enough? We have two options. We either pay them more and say you have exclusivity of service and stop this fooling around on the outside. Or we say, actually, yes, you can be part-time in the house and we'll pay you less and then you can do something externally. We're kind of between two stools. It's not quite enough to say exclusivity of service given the kind of comparable rules you think or should be here. And it's not quite enough to say you're part-time. We're kind of in between everything. And the people who got caught in that trap were the people two who... former foreign secretaries. Exactly. So, Chris, what, what do you think? I mean, do you think it's a scandal at all? What do you think the scandal is about here? I'm still at the stage of finding it 
hilarious. Um, it's two senior politicians coming to the end of the, their time in the House of Commons. Rifkin had wanted to stand again, but he's uh, that's not going to happen. In the case of Jack Straw, uh, this is a man who, after people read his memoir, they said that they couldn't see any strong evidence that he'd ever really believed in anything through his entire political career. And a lot of people are still very angry with him for the role he played as Foreign Secretary in the run-up to the Iraq War. So I think it's hilarious watching him I think it's uh, a bit of, it's a bit of payback. Way. It's not just a payoff, it's a bit of payback. I don't know about that. And the wider question in the background isn't just whether Rifkind will stand as an MP, it's whether... Jack Straw and Malcolm Rifkind will go to the House of Lords, as they would have expected to do, where they could see out their twilight years playing the elder statesman in that somewhat sanctimonious way. I I think it's very, very funny. So you mentioned the Iraq war, because there's another striking thing about this election, if we broaden it out a bit, which is that certainly in 2005, foreign affairs really dominated the campaign because the Iraq war was the question looming in the background. Even in 2010, the global financial crisis was understood as a global issue. In this election, Europe is always looming in the background, always now in British politics, but it still feels like a pretty parochial domestic election. There's not a lot of discussion of foreign affairs. Some things just seem to be completely missing. So just to take one example, where's Libya? Libya is is a Iraq for this government in some respects. That's an intervention that seems to have gone horribly wrong. Why isn't anyone talking about it, Helen? I think that it's a crucially important question and it says some things about democratic politics that probably aren't very flattering about democratic politics is that things matter when they get attached to personality politics and they don't matter when they don't. So with Iraq, underneath it was this deep loathing of Bush that quickly morphed onto a a loathing of Blair. You had certain big personalities who opposed what was happening, not least um, Robin Cook. You had one of the political parties led by Charles Kennedy who put themselves out against the war, but that's just not what happened with Libya. So there were only 13 MPs who voted against the intervention. Not one of them was a senior person. And things that are done by the Obama administration or done in partnership, I should say, with the Obama administration do not have the same negative effect, it seems, in British politics as things that were done by the Bush administration. So even though that in many ways Libya has turned out to be as much of a disaster as Iraq, with the caveat that there aren't British soldiers carrying on being killed there in the way in which there were in Iraq several years later. These are very which is also an important factor of what counts in the campaign. Of course it is, but I still think that in terms of the negatives around Iraq, that they're in place before there are that many casualties from a Western um, perspective, and it inflamed political passions structurally, Libya is exactly the same, and yet nobody wants to talk about it. Finbar, I mean, the other thing to say, of course, is that the French were involved in this too. And I think these kind of things play a bigger role in French politics in some ways than they do in British politics, although I'm saying this as an outsider, it may not be true. I think Where is it in British politics? I think it is further down the list because so many other issues have come up in the meantime. The Iraq context is, as Helen said, one in which personality politics played a huge role. But at the same time, we were still pre the financial crisis. We were pre the massive destruction of economic value and the system. Post that, we've had the crash. We've had the attempted recovery. We've had uh, Scotland trying to leave the union. We've had so many other things come on the radar. It's almost as if these issues, which are vitally important, have been pushed down the rank order. If you look at the trackers, the YouGov tracker and others, foreign affairs isn't even on the trackers, let alone actually in the election so if the pollsters don't even collect the numbers as to what people are feeling, that tells you something about the mood 
that they are feeling and the, the issues that they see are important when they go and poll. So Chris, 2005, that was the outlier. This election is a standard election. 2005 was the one that was in various ways unique. I think that's right. Uh, foreign affairs don't normally loom especially large in British election campaigns. And I think there's a further reason why it's quite a good thing that they don't, when there aren't high levels of public concern, and that's that people are extremely ignorant about foreign affairs. Hardly anyone knows anything about Libya. Even a lot of people who think they know a lot about Libya don't seem to know a great deal about Libya. And if it were to become a political football in the election campaign, it would just become people reading from their pre-prepared scripts, some people calling, saying that there wasn't enough intervention, and some people saying there, there was far too much. It wouldn't be a political debate that would shed any light on Libya, and it wouldn't be a political debate that any of the participants would be likely to say anything interesting in. I feel slightly exposed by that comment because I feel like I'm one of those people who claims to know a lot about Libya, but actually if you put me on the spot, I'm not sure I know an awful lot about Libya, though I have a fairly clear sense of some of the things that have gone wrong. Very, very briefly, does anyone can anyone envisage if the prime ministerial debates happen, there being a moment in those debates that captures people's attention, which is around foreign affairs rather than domestic affairs? And I'm excluding Scotland from foreign affairs here, I mean... Something, and I'm actually excluding questions about Europe. I mean, a global perspective impinging on those debates, or is that asking for too much? The only scenario in which I can see it having any purchase in the debates would be that if Farage, who is quite critical about various aspects of British foreign policy in recent years, leaving the EU aside, and does occasionally say things about Putin which yeah. grab headlines, that yeah. is, he sort of broadly. Exactly. So one can see a situation in which Farage makes some point that is taken up in the media afterwards, that is a foreign affairs point as a more general critique of the British political class. But beyond that, in terms of the three party leaders, it's very difficult to see that there's going to be any engagement about these issues because it doesn't really seem that they disagree about them. We've had the attempted recovery from the global collapse. That should be an issue. But it won't be an issue because the way in which the story got told was in the benefit of the coalition government. And the strap lines of Labour left us in this mess were left on the table and weren't dismantled properly properly by Labour at the time that they were put on the table. So it should be on the table and it should make a difference to the election. But they, they won't go there. They won't be able to make traction on it. I agree with Helen. Mr Cameron wants to talk about his long-term economic plan. Mr Milliband wants to talk about the NHS. Neither of them wants to talk about foreign affairs. I can't see it being a, an important feature in the debates at all. Thanks to Helen Finbar and Chris. Now our interview with Martin Jakes, former editor of Marxism Today and the author of the book When China Rules the World. I spoke to him in my office recently and the pitter-patter that you'll hear in the background is in fact the pitter-patter of a rainy day. I began by asking Martin Jakes whether he was nostalgic for his time in the Thatcher years when he was at the heart of British political debate. Not really. I mean, I look back on that period, certainly editing Marxism today, as, for me personally, extremely productive and creative and something I look back with pride, actually, about what we achieved because, you know, we led the discussion in... Uh, the, the political domain about what Thatcher's recognizing it was something new before she was elected. Before she knew it. As a result, we got a serious following, not just on the left, but also on the right. And then also understanding the decline of the left, the decline of the Labour movement, which you know was something we were doing at the end of the 70s. 
and then later on with you know what we call new times but the idea of globalization post-fordism and the kind of reconstitution of societies on a new basis which our argument was Thatcher, Thatcher understood this much better than the left did. So already then, though your perspective was focusing on British politics, you were already feeling that the real story was way, way wider than that. And to make sense of what was happening in Britain, you had to have a global perspective. Or did yeah, that come I think, later? I think, I'm about to I think ask you're you. probably being slightly kind here. Um, I think that certainly in the latter phases, like the late 80s, early 90s, it was beginning to happen. But if I look back on Marxism today, you know, I think it was a great magazine, extremely important magazine, but it had serious flaws. And one of those flaws was it was overwhelmingly Western-centric and in particular, of course, preoccupied with the UK and the United States, of course, because the rise of neoliberalism and so on was a kind of, you know, an Anglo-Saxon phenomenon. Okay, and and it's important to know that background because we're now going to talk about China because your perspective has shifted... And your focus for the last 20 years and indeed where you've lived, living in Hong Kong and periods in Beijing and so on, your focus has been on China, understanding China and understanding what the rise of China means for the West. Mm. So now looking at it from that vantage point, how does British politics look to you now? Is it an irrelevance? Is it uh, just a little island off, off the coast of Europe? Has China taken over your, your political imagination? Certainly, personally, yes, of course. There's no question about that. I mean, I... Uh, I think by the early 90s, after Marxism Today, after I closed it, I did a lot of column writing for newspapers and television programmes and so on. But actually, deep down, I think I phases in your life come to an end, probably. And I think I was bored by British politics. Not the first person to experience that. And it coincided with the major period and so on. And it was sort of... So it, it was not a very interesting period. Nothing very interesting was happening. And I think I just began to look around. I, and I was freed up a lot. I mean, when I was editing Marxism Today, I was living on a, an absolute pittance. And also, I never had any time. So I couldn't travel, really, for those two reasons. Once that came to an end, you know, I went on holiday in 1993, my first time, really, to East Asia. I'd been to Japan once for a conference. And I went to China and uh, Malaysia and Hong Kong and Singapore. And I was absolutely enthralled and fascinated in a completely unexpected way by what I found. And that was actually the beginning you know, of the present phase of my life. And when you first encountered China then, China was just beginning the process of modernising in the way that we're now completely familiar with. I mean, you, you caught it presumably in the first burst of that kind of political and economic energy? Yeah, Is that I'm, what you saw? What, what, what was it that captured you about China in the, well, China the 90s? Sp- China specifically, it was going to Guangdong province, which is not too you know, north of, of Hong Kong, and just travelling in this minibus from Shenzhen to Guangzhou and just seeing before me this extraordinary transformation taking place in front of one's own eyes, you know? And so you'd be on a, often, sometimes a tarmac road, but as often as not on a muddy track soon to become a tarmac road. And you would have juxtaposed on the road, you know, 100 years or 150 years of British history, if you like, you know, from the water buffalo, bicycles, scooters, people walking, 
to the odd Lexus or Mercedes Benz with darkened windows flashing by, you know, and this, and it would, but it was the energy of the people. And I thought, you know, because I used to be, I was an economic historian of Britain way back, and I thought, Christ, this is what the Industrial Revolution must, must have, have been like, but compressed into this single moment of time, not stretching out over 60, 70, 80 years. And, and what was your sense of the Chinese regime then, the, the political system? Was this a political system that was creaking and struggling? Uh, did you feel that it was under threat by this change, that it would adapt? Well, I think my interest initially in East Asia was not China. And I was sort of hesitant about getting involved in China because, you know, I'd watched the collapse of the Soviet Union and the decay of the Soviet Union and so on. And so I was a little bit, you know, because of my own background, I didn't want to get all involved and entangled in all that kind of thing. Uh, and I knew a lot about the Tigers and so on, uh, more about them than, than China. We should say the Tigers, the Tiger the ti economies. Yeah, the Tiger economies, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, Malaysia, Singapore, etc. But of course, China, China irresistibly in drew me in because this was you know, the early stages of its great transformation. The trouble here was uh, that you couldn't have a a discussion on China at that point without it starting with Tiananmen Square and finishing with Tiananmen Square. And as I got interested in it, it was obviously a ridiculous way of looking at China. It was only one part of a very complex, larger reality. And so let's bring it up to date now, 20 years on, plus the Chinese story. I mean, what you described back then, the speed of change, seeing it happen in this kind of compressed space has just accelerated. China is transformed over the last 30 years. I presume you would agree with that. And Chinese power has grown apace as well. So what's your sense of China's role in the world now? Your perspective is east-west. You see it from both sides. Seeing it from both sides, do you think we're embarking on the Chinese century? I felt for a long time that China was not about to hit the buffers, which was the Western assumption has always been to major on bearish sentiment for the last 20 years that it's all going to come to an end because it's unsustainable. I've never shared that view. I think this has enormous historical traction. Of course, it goes through different stages and so on. Growth rate will come down. But basically, this is a long-term transformation. But the second thing I've recognised, and I think is more important in many ways, is that to understand China, you cannot do it through a Western prism. And the great problem of Western commentary and Western writing about China is always the desire to see it through a Western prism, to expect China to become like us, to expect Chinese politics to become somehow a clone of our own. And so or at least that we can understand it in our terms. Yeah. And my point is, no, you can't. And actually, the greatest challenge of this century for us with the rise of China is to make sense of China. And the only way you can make sense of China is in Chinese terms. In other words, you've got to put in the effort to understand difference, the Chinese difference. The history, the culture are not the same. So I'm now going to ask you a question that will annoy you because I'm just going to go against what you've just said. So this podcast is called Election. We're not just focusing on the British election, but we're going to come, come on to that in a second. You don't believe that the Chinese system is about to hit the buffers. You, you think bearish sentiment is wrong. But one question of any regime is how it renews itself and how it adapts to 
not just dissatisfaction in public opinion, but bubbling discontent if it exists. So one of the problems from a Western perspective is understanding how a system that doesn't have electoral politics as we understand it makes the adaptive changes it needs to do in order to survive. So how does China adapt in the absence of elections? Well, if you take the last 35 years since Deng Xiaoping, you'd say, well, it's adapted with extraordinary success. And more than us, perhaps. And much more. (laughs) You've made the point. I mean, actually, the reformist dynamic in Chinese society, and I include very much the state here, and the question of governance, has been really profound. There have been huge changes in the system of governance over this period. We don't recognise it because the only form of governance reform we recognise in China is one that looks as if it's moving towards our system. So we, don't, we ignore all this. So we don't even, it's not even on our radar. But they have been extremely effective in doing this. And it, China is a very, very different place now in the government system, for example, to how it was under Mao. So I think that also you've got to recognise that, you know, we think that really the only source of legitimacy now is multi-party system and uh, universal suffrage. But I think this is, this is an illusion. I think this is wrong. And the sources of legitimacy in China are historically different. And one of the advantages the regime enjoys, actually, is that the relationship between state and society in Chinese history and in the contemporary context are different from the West. We, we actually couldn't copy that ourselves because it, it, it seems to me a profound historical and cultural difference. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So is it a technocratic kind of legitimacy? I mean, does the Chinese regime depend upon its ability to project a kind of expert understanding and an ability to better people's lives like that, rather than being responsive and accountable. Is it a technocracy? Uh, Yeah, I think in part that point is very important. China is arguably the home of statecraft, and for a very, very long time, the state has been an extremely competent institution in China, and this remains so. And it's an extremely impressive regime. It's presided over over the most remarkable economic transformation in modern, or indeed at any period of history, the state must take a lot of credit for it because it has masterminded it, in effect. So and I think this is an old Chinese tradition as well. It's not just now. I mean, this goes back to Confucius. So that's one thing, state competence. You know, infrastructure. I mean, where would you go if you wanted to build a high-speed railway system? You'd get the Chinese in to do it for you. And this has all happened within you know a very short space of time. And, and they recruit very good people into the state employment, because the state has a particular place in Chinese history and the contemporary situation. And they also, you know, this also extends into areas like how to control or how to guide public opinion as well. Or they've been very... They've been smart about the internet in ways that people didn't anticipate. It is a form of censorship, but it's also... In yes. some ways, it's more hands-off than people realise. In some ways, it's more hands-on than people realise. Both it, of those it, things are true. It employs large numbers of people, people to keep an eye on what the public are saying. But and in a situation where 
the amount of information and opinion available to the Chinese has increased exponentially. So that it, the context of the guiding and the control and so on is that huge expansion and a public opinion which is hugely more informed than ever it was previously. But there's another factor, I think, about legitimacy, and that is the whole way in which the relationship between state and society is viewed in China is very different from the Western tradition. I mean, you know, in a Confucian tradition, but it extends also to other parts, to a lesser degree of East Asia, there's a familial attitude towards the state. In other words, it's not a utilitarian or instrumentalist view, as we have in Western democracies, but it's much more viewing the state almost as the parent. And in fact, a lot of Chinese will say this to you. If you want to understand the Chinese state, think of the Chinese parent. And this is, this is an interesting point. Quite, from it? a Western perspective, quite a scary thought as well. <laughs> so what are the weaknesses? Because it can't all be uh, sweetness and light. What, what are the weaknesses of this regime? I mean, is it its corruption? Because there clearly is well, a lot of corruption. Is it because competence also goes along with a certain ruthlessness? And one of the things, and we'll come on to this in a second, that politicians in the West might envy about their Chinese counterparts is their decisiveness. But decisiveness does often mean the ability to take quick decisions in the face yeah. of what would be in the West popular opposition. Yeah. W- where are the weak points? The greatest single vulnerability of China is also its greatest strength, and that is its size and its diversity. So when China's working really well, as it is in this period, very benign period, relatively speaking, you know, China plays to its great strength, which is its size. But it's also an extremely difficult society to hold together because the centrifugal forces are very, very powerful in the society, much more stronger than any West, you know, Western nation states, even the United States are relatively straightforward in comparison with running a place like China. So, and, and historically, you know, the periods when China's done well have been the benign period when the centripetal forces have been dominant over the centrifugal and the periods when the country's fallen apart in effect in some degree have been when the centrifugal forces got the better of it so when will this period come to an end well most decisively when that phase happens again and it will happen again it won't go on forever like this but i don't think we should anticipate it being around the corner or in the near future but some considerable way down the road. And we're going to come back to Britain in a second, but one last question on China. When the phase does come to an end, one of the ways to hold together a polity on that scale is through nationalism. And that's one of the fears in the West, which is Chinese nationalism is likely to rise just at the point where the Chinese state starts to fracture. Mm. Is that is that me just again being excessively Western in my fears? Well, or? you see, I'm a little bit cagey about this, I know it's a popular term, Chinese nationalism, but I think that's an assumption that China is a conventional nation-state in the way that we are in the West have conventional nation-states. And I don't think that China is primarily a nation-state. I think it is only secondary a nation-state, and it certainly has some forms which are nation-state forms because it exists in a world of nation-states. But primarily it's a civilization state in my view. You know, I don't think China is particularly, in that sense, nationalistic. I mean, Japan is, but Japan is a much more conventional state in that sense uh, than China. I mean, I think our greatest fear of China going wrong in the West, if it did go really go wrong. Well, something bad always happens in the end. Well, I mean, the, the consequences <laughs> of it would be... I mean, let's, let, let's, let's imagine that for some reason China implodes. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen in, in the next 50 years or something like that. But if it did, 
imagine the consequences for China itself. Imagine the consequences globally, because the Chinese economy by then probably be two or three times the size of the American economy. Projected 2030, the Chinese economy be twice the size of the American economy. So the global consequences of it all going bottom up would be disastrous. It's not in humanity's interest for this to happen, but it might happen. So then we are going to go to the parochial now, because it feels parochial to talk about a British general election against those kind of civilizational, long-term questions, challenges, prospects for humanity. But there is also an election going on in this country. So as we said at the beginning, 20 years ago, plus you were very plugged into this. Now you have a, a different view from a different perspective. Look from the perspective that you take now on British politics. Do you care about the outcome of this election? Do you think it matters? I mean, well, it, matters, it matters to us. Um, and when I say us, I mean, it matters to the British electorate. But does it matter in wider terms what happens in this election? Well, it certainly matters to me. You're right, my interests like elsewhere. But I was born here, I've been here all my life, or most of my life. And uh, you live in London now, And right? I live in London, yeah. So it, it, it does matter. And, you know, the fact is, I spend a lot of my time writing about, editing, and so on, British politics. So I have some kind of historical stake in it uh, as well. So I do think it matters. If you ask me, well, how much does it matter globally, if that's the question? That's kind of the question. Then much less than it used to. You would have to say this. Why? Because Britain is much less important than it used to be. I mean, it's less important to America than it used to be. It's less important in the context of Europe than it used to be because it's no longer a major player. Well, it's a relatively minor player. But most important of all, the great global shift has diminished the importance not only of Britain but of Europe. I mean, I remember when I was a student in the 1960s, you know, where did you look for a sense of the future? Well, probably Paris. You'd never dream of saying that now, really. <laughs> But what about Berlin? Would you look to Berlin or not for a sense of at least the European future? Yeah, I mean, a German election is more important than a, a British election now because Germany is a much more important country. Germany's clearly got, you know, if you look at the Ukraine or Germany's relationship with China, which is much more developed than any other country in Europe. And Germany is a very important country in a European context, but not a global context. I mean, not only is Britain much diminished, but Europe is much diminished. And the process of European, if you like, diminishment, if there was such a word, is going to continue. There was an era when Europe was the maker of the world, literally, colonised most of the world. We'll look back on that period as, well, how did it happen? You know, Why this relatively small continent with not such a large population could exercise an influence? But that is vast. The world of the future is going to be shaped above all in the East, East Asia, above all by China and I think India in time as well. And that will be 38% of the world's population. In a way, we're almost returning to the agrarian past where you know the demographics mattered. They didn't matter for an era after the European Industrial Revolution, starting with the British, because the technological advantage was so great once you could make that step, the productivity of I so great, then the military advantage that that secured at the same time, and then the capacity to colonise the world, and in the colonising the world, essentially inhibiting, in many respects, the growth of those countries. So China, for 150 years, GDP didn't grow, and India doubled or something like that. 
But it was then after they became independent or China had its revolution in 1949, suddenly, you know, instead of barely growing at all, they started to grow at 5% and then 10% and so on. And then the demographic advantage of just size has become more and more important. And that's the world we're moving into. So Europe's advantage has gone. So, so what then is the game for Europe's politicians or indeed for Britain's politicians? Because one possible tension here is that we also have a kind of technocratic politics and increasingly technocratic politics, but it doesn't sit well with democratic politics. Part of the frustration, part of the anger around this election is a sense that the parties are the same. They have a certain kind of superficial elitism about them and a, a pretense of expertise, but basically they're offering us the same thing and it's not especially competent. So if you were a British politician, do you think we need more technocracy or more democracy? Because it's hard to see how the two go together in the way that they're kind of currently yoked. I'm going to sort of dodge your question for the moment while I try and work out how to reply to that, because I think there's another way also of looking at this, which is that looking at Britain or looking at other European countries and the discontent, it may have different forms, but there's... A, it's, it's, it's palpable. Yeah, and it's relatively common across the continent. Why? I think there are at least two reasons. One is that ever since the financial crisis, uh, living standards have either declined or are, are stagnant. This situation hasn't existed since the 1930s. In fact, I think you probably have to go back to the 19th century to find something like that, because real wages, if you were in work in the 1920s and 30s, you were OK, well, relatively OK, so people are discontented because, you know, if you ask them, you know, will your children enjoy a better standard of living than you, people in the great majority now think that their children will be worse off when they grow up than they have been. Which is not true in China. The majority absolutely thing, not true yeah, in China. Just, uh, but, okay. Living standards doubling in China yeah. when they were growing at 10%. Yeah, sure. Uh, so just to put, it, put it in perspective yeah, anyway, but yeah, back, sorry, yeah. but back to Europe. Yeah. So they're, they are filled with optimism and we're filled with pessimism. Well, that's slightly uh, exaggerating, but th that kind of picture is, is broadly true, I think. So I think that there's a sense in which the system that we have got, whatever you mean by system, but the present system isn't delivering anymore. And there's a general loss of faith in the system and its institutions and in the governing elites, and therefore loss of respect for politicians and political parties. But not only that, I think across the board, there is a loss of faith in the institutions that run society. Now, this is, I don't know where this is going to lead, but it's clearly true. And the second problem, and this is going to be a continuing problem, is that the British elite like France, like other European countries, enjoyed a prestige by virtue of the fact that they were so influential and important in the world. Now, what happens when your country, the country you're responsible for, is suffering a steady decline in its prestige, its status, its authority and its influence? It matters clearly less and less and less. Now, the British have been very poor by and large, across the board, in facing up to this reality. Because the default mode is always pomp and circumstance and aren't we important, rather than where we are, you know, wiping the slate clean and recognising. So we're always looking in some degree or other in the rearview mirror, I would say. For me, these are the two problems, okay, not so just now, but over the 
foreseeable, for the foreseeable so, future. So then a last question to, to tie it back to the theme of this podcast, which is election. Do elections get in the way of managed decline? Because obviously the one thing that no politician is going to try and sell themselves to the electorate on is as the manager of decline. So is there a way, do you think, that a democracy like this one can negotiate that tricky process while also every few years having to fight democratic elections? Is it is it now a handicap? I wouldn't go that far. I mean, you know, I don't envisage democracy as we know it being replaced by something else in Europe, though it might happen in some countries. We could see this is a perfectly possible scenario in, I don't know, in Southern European societies. It could happen. It, it could happen. It, it, can't, it can't be excluded. And it was suspended briefly, as we know, a few years ago. There was a, In Italy and Greece, democracy was suspended for technocracy, but that didn't work either, so we're now back with democracy again. Yeah, except that the present Italian prime minister, as the two previous ones, was not elected. I mean, he was appointed by his party and inherited a vote in the Chamber of, of Deputies. So, I mean, you can see it creaking, the system, but... Britain, we're very attached to it. It goes back a long time, and I think it's durable. I mean, I and it's nothing if not adaptable. It's, it's it, it is adaptable over the years. Indeed, the problem is is how do we spring clean our institutions? How do we think forwards rather than constantly being, in some degree or other, dragged backwards? And um, we made one clear break for it, I think, and that was with Thatcher. But looking back on it. Thatcher looks actually, I would say, and I was an admirer of hers, but not a supporter, that she doesn't look so good in the light of history because so much of what she offered was sort of was looking backwards in a new in a new way, if you like. And not least the way she treated Scotland. What I you know, what I would say, which you haven't asked me, is I think more important than the general election was the Scottish referendum. Because what I expect to happen, which isn't the same as it actually happening, is that Scotland will secede from the UK at some point in the next 20 years. But sooner rather than later. Sooner rather than later, yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, one of the things we've got to get used to in Britain, I mean, in 1945, we had a huge empire, 20% of the world's population, 20% of the world's landmass. Then we had the great period of colonial liberation, broadly speaking, coming to an end in the late 60s. And we sort of think, oh, aren't we clever? You know, look, post-imperial decline, we've negotiated it. But actually, what we didn't understand was that post-imperial decline didn't finish with that. It's been a process that has been continuing. And it's now eating in to the very islands themselves, if you like. And this is part of the process, because Scotland got a lot out of empire, but in the post-imperial situation, it doesn't see any longer the reason why its interests are necessarily going to be served by retaining the partnership with England. So probably looking down the road, what we're going to see is something like England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland isn't going to be Northern Ireland forever. I mean, sooner or later, I think there will be some kind of rapprochement on the Irish island. So England and Wales... It happens. Thanks to Martin Jakes for giving a global perspective on a national election. I know not everyone's going to agree with what he has to say about China, but it is very important to hear about how this election might look from outside eyes. Now back to our panel. Chris, 
Do you ever get the feeling that, seen from a global perspective, this election really doesn't matter at all? Yes, I do get that feeling. And one of the reasons I have that feeling is that I lived in the United States in the later 1990s. And from that perspective, British politics does look parochial and trivial. And it's difficult to get worked up about the things that you know your friends at home are worked up about. And, and we should remind ourselves that was the time when Tony Blair was elected into office. And in Britain, people thought that a new dawn was breaking, but not in... I don't know where you were in the States, but not, not from wherever you were. I, I, I was in Massachusetts, and I think that's right. I think, though, that what isn't parochial or what isn't trivial about the election is the fact that it's not hyperbolical to suggest that within two or three years, the United Kingdom might not be a member of the European Union, and the United Kingdom might begin to break up with a renewed and successful bid for Scottish independence. That's not trivial in the grand scheme of things. It affects the European Union, it has repercussions for the United Nations, it certainly affects the way that the British, or in future perhaps the English Foreign Office, goes about its business. So to that extent, Scotland and Europe make it a non-parochial election, but from afar, the domestic scene can look extremely narrow. And, and even, never mind from Massachusetts, even from Beijing, were the United Kingdom to break up, the world would notice, because there are lots of parts of the world where successful separatism frightens the ruling elite. Is that what this election might mean in, in places which otherwise wouldn't much care about what the British electorate thinks or decides? It's one of the things it will mean. The modelling that can occur will be quite strong. I'm less expecting the breakup of the union through the next parliament. I think that the potential next referendum for Scotland is going to be at least a parliament away, if not two parliaments away, uh, depending on how things play out and whether the SNP do form some sort of supply agreement with a minority Labour government. For me, as Chris said, I was also in America and I actually covered the uh, 2000 presidential election and the scale and the scope is different and the perspective back towards Europe basically says an important partner, but unless it can actually start to look outwards and stop doing this purely domestic version, it will become less and less important and it will have less and less standing. So I think there's this weird duality. It's an election which may mean nothing. The union stays the same. It's an argument about domestic politics. Parties which are very similar and have very similar outlooks arguing and one of them forming a government. Or it can be incredibly impactful because we do come out of Europe and there is a moment where there is a question mark over Europe as a trading block and then there is this question back to China's role and how much of world trade it's taking and how its relationship to a now fractured Europe evolves. So it could go either way, Helen, but we're still more than two months out from the election, but stuff is happening all the time and it's not as if Britain is a completely negligible player in world affairs. This government is taking decisions that matter, right? Absolutely. I think the most striking thing that's happened this week is here we are around two months before the election and the Prime Minister of this country has decided to send British military advisers to Ukraine. That should send all kinds of alarm bells ringing to people given the whole term military advisers and all its connotations with Vietnam. But instead, it's barely raising a comment. And what we can see is, is that we have a prime minister, doesn't, I think, in this case, matter which political party he belongs to, that thinks that this kind of decision can be made and it have no electoral repercussions whatsoever. If you go back to the decision-making about Vietnam early on, the American presidents were terrified of elections, that that's timescale in which they made their decisions around. Here, that doesn't seem to be an issue, which suggests that there's a 
fundamental disconnect between the ways in which our political class think about Britain's place in the world and then their sense of what democratic politics in Britain is about. Thanks, Helen. And that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to all our contributors, Helen Thompson, Finbar Livesey, Chris Brooke, to our special guest, Martin Jakes, and for production, Hannah Critchlow, Francis Durnley and Lizzie Presser. Join us again next week when our guest will be John Norton, the historian of the internet and one of Britain's leading commentators on the implications of the tech revolution. We'll be talking about the impact of the new technology on electoral politics. Is it possible that Facebook might decide the outcome of this election? Tune in next week to hear more. This has been Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast.